If you have been with us over the sort of over the summer months, um, we have been in a series called Joy, and we've been looking at uh, the book of Philippians. And today we are into the third chapter of that book, and we're uh, starting today in verses one through to eleven. So, if you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Philippians three, uh, starting at verse one? And the word should appear behind me on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. This is what it says. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, as it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. And we thank God for his word as it is alive and speaking to us today. So as I've said, um, we have been in this series called Joy, looking through the book of Philippians. Um, And so far we've looked at thanksgiving, we've looked at oneness, we've looked at resilience, and last week we unpacked partnership. And today as we enter the third chapter of Philippians, we are looking specifically at the theme of giving up on religion. And the, uh, the passage starts in quite a, quite a nice fashion. Um, as kind of a lot of the book of Philippians, Paul is writing in quite uh, encouraging, warm language. Uh, and then kind of out of nowhere, the passage takes a very quick, stark turn, right? The the tone changes dramatically from this rejoice always message to this abrupt invasive warning. And that's exactly what is going on here. Paul is forewarning the Christians in, in the Philippian church against a religiosity that was creeping in from this group of teaching that was coming from a group of Jewish Christians. And these Jews um, these Jews, uh, these Jewish Christians, were uh, a group of of Christians who were incredibly serious about the Torah, about the law, and these this group of Jewish Christians were known as what was called the Judaizers, right? So they were they branded themselves in a really uncool way, um, but Paul's ministry was closely followed and uh, widely oppressed by this group of Judaizers. They would follow him from city to city trying to go against his teaching and teaching an alternative message. And their message was this. If you wanted to truly be a follower of Jesus, you had to be circumcised. 
lovely Sunday morning conversation. Um, but the reason for the warning was because Philippi didn't actually have a large Jewish community at the time. So Paul was forewarning this group of Philippians that this Judaizer agenda could be on its way to derail what the Spirit was already doing in the people. And as Paul warns the church, right, he does not hold back, right? He comes in off guns blazing, firing at all cylinders, and he calls them three different things right at the beginning in verse 2. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh, right? You're not going to see that on like a birthday card or like a postcard from Philippi from the dogs, right? He comes in all guns blazing. He is not holding back. But let me unpack what he is saying here really quickly in these three phrases because what he's doing is he's actually playing on words. And the first thing that he calls them are dogs, right? I'm no expert in biblical hermeneutics, but I can tell you that if you call somebody a dog, right, it's probably not going to go down very well. And back then it was even more offensive because dogs were, to the first century people, what rats would be to us. Now, right, there's no dog Instagram accounts back then, right? It was, dogs were vermin, they carried disease, they, you didn't want them anywhere near you. And what Paul is doing here is that he is playing on words. During our ACT series earlier in the year, we discovered that the, the Jews and the Gentiles had quite a prejudiced relationship with one another. And one of the terms that Jews would have used to describe Gentiles was dogs. And it was a derogatory term that they would have used against them. And what Paul is doing here is using their own insult against them. So he begins by calling them dogs. And then secondly, he calls them evildoers. And at this point, he's just beginning to add insult to injury. Because these Judaizers, right, they weren't bad people. They, they weren't persecuting the church or anything. They, they were the kind of people who prided themselves in good works and how they kept the laws and then how they kept Sabbath and how they kept the dietary uh, laws and all that sort of stuff. These were moral men and women, good people in the eyes of the Jews. So can you imagine how offensive it would be to then turn to people who, you know, pride themselves in all the good stuff that they do to then call them evildoers? To be people who prided themselves in high moral standards and then turn and call them evil, Right? It's not exactly what they would want to hear. It's kind of like, you know when somebody makes a really oversimplistic sort of comment about the job you do, right? So I, I work in communications for Scripture Union, and uh, not too long ago, my sister-in-law turned to me and said, so what is it you do? You just like run Instagram, don't you? Right? So it's just like, yes, I've become an influencer, everyone. That's what I do in my life now. But what Paul is doing here is becoming, is, is he's being deliberately provocative, and he's deliberately calling these moral, upstanding, law-abiding, good works people evildoers. And then the final thing that he calls them are mutilators of the flesh. And again, Paul is playing on words, and he's being quite smart, but we actually miss it in our Greek to English translation. Go with me for a second on this. There's two Greek verbs that are very similar and the word peritome which means to circumcise or to cut around. I have no images so you'll be glad to know we'll leave that one to the imagination. Uh, so the word peritome which means to circumcise and this word would have been very similar to the word that Paul is using in the passage and that word is katatome. 
which means to mutilate. And as he said, as he would have said this, this would have caught their attention. Because when they hear him say katatume, they will recognize that this term is the same word that would have been associated to the pagan practice of uh, what was known as sympathetic magic, right? So it was this practice that you would, uh, the pagans would have practiced that where they would cut themselves, they would have self, self-harmed in order to get the attention of their God in the hope that uh, their God would then see their self-sacrifice and then do something for them in return. And the thing is that culturally, Judaizers would have looked down on pagans and particularly their practice of mutilation. And what Paul does is that he turns it on them. And he's saying that your observance of peritome, of circumcision, is no different now to the pagan observance of katatome, of mutilation. In other words, what he's saying is that these Jews, they think they're circumcised, but really they're just mutilated like the pagans. So in these three phrases alone, Paul is beginning to turn the tables in order to warn the Philippians against this religiosity that was crippling the church. Paul is trying to break down the religious strongholds that these Judaizers were preaching because this religiosity was made obsolete in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But these Christians, Jews, they didn't quite get that. They were so sure that the law said that it was circumcision that led to holiness and set apartness. So once that was you, you were in, and if that wasn't you, it had to be you in order to be truly holy. But they missed the point. How do we know? Well, Paul goes on to say this in verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul is trying to assure the Philippians not to put any confidence in the flesh because the real emphasis for Paul was the heart. We see this issue being raised in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy when the writer says this, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and live. So this right here is the embodiment that if you spend any amount of time in church growing up, and that you will have probably heard in Sunday school, uh, this, this verse from 1 Samuel, that God, or man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. The issue is that the religious teaching was creeping its way into the church. And Paul is trying to tell the Philippians to steer clear of this teaching because it was false. What he's saying is that we, those who have accepted Jesus into their hearts, into our own hearts, we are the circumcised. And this morning there's just two things that I want to highlight uh, to look into today really quickly to help us see that why following Jesus is giving up on religion. And they are focus and vision. And the first is focus. I have this uh, really distinct memory growing up. Uh, every Easter, we would have uh, went away to a place up in the North Coast with a group of families from our church, and it was kind of like one of the highlights of, of my year. I loved going up there, and it was, we were there for the whole of the Easter weekend. And I have this really vivid memory of 
I was probably about seven or eight, and my mum had bought me and my brother a pack of Lord of the Rings top trumps, right? And I was, like, delighted. This was, like, the best thing ever, and I couldn't wait. We couldn't wait to, like, arrive and, like, pull out our really cool cards and, like, play top trumps. It was an incredibly simpler time back then. But I remember uh, we, we were playing this game. It was the first round, and uh, the cards got dealt out, and I turned over my hand, and I had Gandalf, right? And I was like, bring it home, guys. Here we go. This is, this is all mine, right? So that was fine. I was, like, waiting for the right time to play this card. And uh, everybody was, like, you know, playing their best card. So I was, like, throwing it down very confidently. To then my brother beside me throwing down the ring. And then I was like, ah, oh. I didn't anticipate that whatsoever. And all of a sudden, my Gandalf was not as invincible as I thought he was. And something similar happens in the passage. They're not playing Lord of the Rings top trumps. But there's something similar that happens in the passage. This is what it says in verses 3 and 4. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Basically, what Paul is doing here is he's playing Jewish top trumps, right? He says, if anyone has reasons to put confidence in their, their flesh, to boast in their Jewishness, I have more. In other words, you want to go there? Okay, let's go there. And he does, and he, he goes on to list his Jewish credentials. Verses 5 and 6 say this. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And I just want to unpack this a little bit further. So the first thing he says is that he was circumcised on the eighth day. This was the Jewish custom for parents to circumcise their, their baby boys on the eighth day of their lives. So he said, yet yeah, Donna ticked it off. He says, of the people of Israel, right? And what he's saying here is, I'm not a convert. I'm not, I haven't converted to Judaism. I am Jewish through and through. He then says, of the tribe of Benjamin. And back in the first century, there was only two tribes who could trace their genealogy back to their rich. And they were the tribe of Judah, of which Jesus came, and the tribe of Benjamin, of which Paul comes from. So what he's saying here is that I'm one of the few Jews left who can trace their ancestry back to Abraham. He then says, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he's a purist, right? Many of the Jews of that day would have been what were known as Hellenistic Jews, and they were Jews who came from Greek parents. But what Paul is saying here is that he is a Hebrew-speaking Hebrew of Hebrew-speaking parents. He's a purist. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then he says, in regards to the law, a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were a religious sect who, who were incredibly serious about the law and the Torah and what it meant to keep these laws. And he spent so much of his life as one of the most well-respected and well-known Pharisees. He then goes on to say, as for zeal persecuting the church. And the word zeal meaning a religiosity that was fueled by anger. It was, it was almost a form of nationalism. And there was an, a group in Paul's day uh, called the Zealots, and they were an armed, a group of armed insurgents against the Roman Empire, and they were a fundamentalist, militant group of Jews. 
And Paul himself wasn't a zealot per se. He wasn't part of the zealots, but he was zealous to the point of persecuting the church, imprisoning and even killing men and women. And then he finishes off by saying, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. And he's not saying that he was sinless, but he was saying in regards to all of these laws, I've kept them to the letter, I'm faultless. So Paul, talking about these Judaizers, says, if they think they have reason to boast in their Jewishness, in their physical circumcision, Paul is saying, I have way more reason to boast. My Jewish credentials are unrivaled, yet I count it loss. Yet I count it loss. Why? Because it wasn't about that anymore. It wasn't about his Jewish credentials or his activity. It was about what Jesus had done in his life. And when we translate uh, this kind of list of stuff that Paul is working through, this list of Jewish credentials, and we look at that in our modern context, in our 21st century context, that probably looks a little like all of our Christian activity. Right? It looks like our personal devotion to Christ, how we practice the spiritual disciplines, how we read our Bibles, how often we pray, how much and how well we serve the church, the amount of money we give to the church, and so on and so on. But very quickly, we begin to view these things, all of this stuff, as the metric of our faithfulness. Like it's these things in and of themselves that will determine the validity and the strength and the depth of our relationship with God. Like if I just focus on doing these things really well and consistently, then I'll be okay. And don't get me wrong, a lot of these things are good things and things that I strongly do believe will help us to seek, as we seek to become more like Jesus, but they are all a means to an end. And the end is deep relationship with Jesus. Thomas A. Kempis, a 15th century canon and author in his work, The Imitation of Christ, wrote that we were to develop a familiar friendship with Jesus. And that was and is always the focus for the Jesus follower. And that's what Paul is urging the Philippians towards. And that's what the Judaizers got wrong because their focus was less about the end and more about the means. Their focus was way off. And it begs the question for us here today, what does that mean for us? What are the things that we make the focal point? Is it stuff that we have to do in order to get to God, in order to feel like we're in good standing with him? Or is it to just be with him? When it's the former, when we make it about the stuff we have to do, Before we know it, we don't develop a familiar friendship with Jesus. We develop a religious spirit towards Jesus. And the danger with that religious spirit, with religion and religiosity, is that we will always fall short. It's a bit of a double-edged sword at times. We either feel like we aren't doing enough, we feel bad about that, or we do enough to the point that when we miss it, we feel just as equally bad. But the issue with that and with both of those outcomes is that very often we make it about us. Like it's all on 
us. And we hold tightly to the stuff, the Christian activity that we can do in some weird attempt at twisting God's arm in the hope that our righteousness is strengthened. One commentator says this about this morning's passage. The apostle is facing a very dangerous and devious doctrinal defection as he writes this word to the Philippians. He is dealing with a false teaching that would set aside Jesus Christ from the rightful place of preeminence in the believer's life and would make the believer himself the center of life. And that's the challenge of religiosity. It puts you in control. It puts you in the driving seat. And all of this faith stuff falls on you. And of course there is a level of proactivity that is needed uh, as we invest in our relationship with Christ. They are spiritual disciplines after all. And we did a whole series on them not too long ago, back earlier last year. But very often... It just when the focus becomes about the stuff that we need to do, we just end up falling short, feeling disappointed, and sometimes never actually end up being with Jesus. Like when I think of my relationship with Hannah, it's not simply based on a series of things that I do for her or need to get done or achieve, but it's based on a person that I need to learn to love. Yes, doing you know stuff for her and doing things. All of that flows from my love for her. But those things in them of themselves are not the focus of my relationship with her. And Paul is writing to warn the Philippians against this teaching. He is urging them to stay away from this religiosity that was coming from the Judaizers. This, this teaching that they had to be circumcised in order to truly follow Jesus. And there's a warning here for us to not one of circumcision but of focusing on religious activity rather than the author and perfecter of our faith. Maybe for you it's feeling like you don't read your Bible enough or you don't commit to the community of believers enough or you don't pray enough or you do that thing that you know you shouldn't do too much. I don't know what it is for you. But whatever it is, can I say, one, that it's, it's okay and it's good to acknowledge our shortcomings, but in doing so, turning our eyes on the one whose grace is sufficient for us in those shortcomings. Yes, there are biblical standards and values and boundaries that we believe are good for the flourishing of the believer. And yes, we can improve on our devotional life and our giving and our compassion and our prayer and our fasting and all of these things, but they were never meant to be the focus of our faith. Byproducts of it, yes, absolutely they are, but never the focus. We are to focus on Jesus and Jesus alone. Our priority should be to develop a familiar friendship with him. And as we do that, all of the other stuff follows. It's about Jesus. It's about focusing on him. This is what Paul is saying in the beginning of this passage. Giving up on religion firstly looks like focus. Maybe for some of us here today that looks like refocus. But it is focusing our undivided attention on the things of Jesus and developing a familiar friendship with him. But second thing that I want to highlight this morning is that giving up on religion is vision. Paul then continues his letter to the Philippians. And as he writes, we see 
that, his, that him following Jesus had given him a new vision, a new way to look at his life. His priorities and his perspectives were new. He himself was new. Verses 7 and 8 again say this. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So not just the confidences that he once had in his Jewishness are now a loss. He now considers everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I sometimes just have to let that line in and of itself sink in just a little bit. And everything that he once considered again, he now calls rubbish. And again, in typical Paul fashion, he's being deliberately provocative because the word that he's using here is the word rubbish and that translates to the word uh, skubalon in Greek. And this word skubalon is a strange word, but it's a vulgar word, right? And it's actually the closest word in the New Testament that we have to a swear word. It's, in politer terms, it's excrement. But in fact, the word the scubalon is in the English, I can't say, because if my mum's watching, she will beat the scubalon out of me, right? So you get the picture of kind of how severe things are. But it's rubbish. And what Paul is saying is, is that this religiosity, his Jewish accolade, all of his status and power and position, authority, heritage, accumulation, it's all meaningless compared to knowing Christ. And he had a totally renewed vision of how he saw himself. Why? Because of his identity. Because when Paul comes to faith in Jesus, he gained a new identity that was given to him by Jesus that was based solely on what Jesus had done in his life. An identity that was immersed in the grace and the mercy and the goodness of a God who relentlessly sought after him even when he was brutally persecuting the church. No longer an identity that was bolstered by how Jewish he was or how well he could recite the law or keep Sabbath. But he had a vision of a new identity that was secured in knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. And all of the other religious stuff that he once put his identity in, that was now rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. He then continues in verse 9, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. In other words, Because of Jesus, who I am now has nothing to do with me. It's all because of him. Because Paul was found in Christ. And because he was, he could renounce his own self-made righteousness and live by the righteousness that was given from God by faith. The foundation for his spiritual life was now in what Jesus had done for him and not in what he had done or could do or would ever do in the future. And the danger is that when we approach faith 
in Jesus with a religious spirit is that the foundation becomes about what we do in order to get ourselves to that place of righteousness. And as I've already mentioned, that just often leads to a place of self, self-reliance, self-dependence, and self-assurance. And before we know it, our vision is short-sighted. It becomes legalistic, becomes centered around us again, our actions, our attempts at self-righteousness. And maybe our human morality and standards get a little bit comforted or cushioned just a little bit by the fact that we've maybe done something that we think would aid our righteousness. But Paul's urging the Philippians that righteousness is knowing Christ intimately and that comes from the basis of faith. And the good news for us here today is that when we give up on religion, when we stop striving for behavior modification and start seeing Jesus for who he really is, when we allow our vision of Jesus to go beyond our small-minded human religious standards, we end up standing in a place of righteousness before God who loves us unconditionally. Maybe you're here today and you can't seem to shift your vision beyond yourself. Maybe you think over the last week, over the last month, even over the last day, and you think, man, alive, I'm not even close. I'm not scratching the surface. Well, to you, I would say, one, you're probably in good company because I think we all know what it's like to feel like that. But two, and more importantly, Jesus never asked for your perfection. Is he aware of our sinful nature? Yes, but when we profess Jesus as Lord, does he view us in light of that sinful nature? No. And this is the scandal of grace. This is the mystery that no matter how much we try, we will probably never be able to get our heads around it. I listened to a podcast this week and talked about the grace of God being ridiculous. And it is. It's ridiculous. But it is a gift from a good God. We don't have to earn it by trying really hard to impress him, by bargaining our way there, by proving ourselves by our religious standards. It is a gift freely given and received because he loves you. Over the last few months, um, I've seen this quote floating around social media and I've seen it quite a lot. I don't actually know who, who said it or who put it together. Um, But this is what it says. Religion says, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. The gospel says, I messed up. I need to call my dad. And that's it. That is at the heart of what Paul is saying. He's urging the Philippians to keep their vision above the religious tyranny that was sweeping through the church. And he's telling them to keep their eyes on the truth that when their identity is rooted in Jesus, that religion holds no place in their lives. But Paul's vision of what it means to be found in Jesus and to know Jesus doesn't end there. He goes on to say this in verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ. Yes, I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. And this is where things on the surface maybe get a little bit uncomfortable because I know when I read that and I, I, I see the words, I want to know Christ and think, yes, I'm in. I want to know the power of his resurrection, absolutely, and participate in his sufferings. Oh, never mind, I'm good. 
I'm out. Thanks very much. And that's the sort of thing, you know, they, they put in the small print that they hope you never read. But Paul is straight up about this. He says, this is what I'm here for. And then we look at his life and ministry and think, Flip, he really did mean it when he said it. He suffered so much adversity in his ministry. Here's a quick account of what he faced in his own words as he writes to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent the night and the day in an open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Not exactly your Jewish poster boy anymore, right? But why? Why was Paul so okay with suffering and resurrection? Well, because suffering and resurrection were two of the dominant themes in Jesus' life. And Paul knew that for him to truly know God, it wasn't going to be enough to just know of God or know him at a safe distance or it didn't really infringe on his life, but to know him meant to know him so intimately that he would experience everything that Jesus experienced, and that included suffering. A few weeks back, we had our friend Alan Emerson come and speak uh, with us, and uh, for anyone who doesn't know Al, Al has written a book um, over the last number of years uh, called Luminous Dark, and in the book he unpacks his story through grief as he lost his first wife at a really young age. And in the book, Pete Gregg um, writes the foreword and he recounts a conversation that they had in a pub in Belfast. And this is what he writes. It's another night at a bar, a year or so after Lindsay's death. Alan asks, you know that wee bit where Jesus promises us life to the full? I nod, noticing a wry smile on Alan's face, wondering what's coming next. Alan continues, well, has it ever occurred to you that when Jesus said life to the full, he must have surely meant a life like his own? And life to the full means a life full of joy, miracles, like Jesus, right? I try to smile encouragingly. Where is he going with this? I looked directly in my eyes and says, but wasn't the life of Christ marked by suffering as well as joy? Wouldn't a life like his also be full of struggles, disappointment, and pain? And that's it. Paul knew that to really know Jesus meant to embrace suffering when it came. And the word knowing or, or know in the Greek in that part of the passage, when Paul says that he wants to know Christ, is this word gnosko, and it depicts a deep, intimate knowledge, like the, the knowledge between a husband and a wife, a knowledge that goes way beyond the surface. And that's what Paul was trying to get at here. His desire was to know God so intimately, that meant that even in suffering, he would know and experience the goodness and the faithfulness and the intimacy of a God who knew what it was to suffer. And that's what it means for us here today too. When we commit our lives to Jesus, we also have the invitation to step into his sufferings. And that doesn't mean that we sign up to a life solely of suffering, but that doesn't mean 
as well that we sign up to a life absent of it. We live in a broken world and suffering is part and partial with it. But when, as we go through that suffering, when we are in the midst of it, Jesus meets us in it. I don't know what that looks like for you today. Maybe that looks like illness or relationship breakdown or job loss, financial issues, maybe spiritual battles. I don't know what that means. But the good news is that God will meet you so intimately in that suffering. And that doesn't mean that your problems will disappear right away. But as God meets you in that place, just as he did with Paul, he will give you all of himself. And his grace will be sufficient for you and his strength will be made perfect in your weakness. And the good news doesn't end there because Paul knew that suffering wasn't the end. That's why he could so freely say back in Philippians 1 that to live was Christ and to die was gain. Suffering didn't have the final word in Paul's life and it doesn't have to have the final word in yours either. And I don't say that to sound glib or patronizing about what it is you're going through, so please hear me in that. But Paul knew that resurrection was on the other side of suffering, even death, because Jesus modeled that. And that's the hope that we have today. That's why Paul could speak about, with such joy about matters so difficult that as we die to ourselves, as we die to religion, we come alive in Christ. And today I want to urge you, as Paul did with the Philippians, to keep your vision on the things of Christ, to allow yourself to know him deeply, that gnosko kind of knowing that deep, intimate knowledge of Christ. Because as you know him and you experience him knowing you through the good and the bad, you will realize that his desire is way more about being with us and enjoying communion with us through his word and prayer and fasting and all of them other disciplines than it is about how religious we become about all that stuff. There is a joy to be found in giving up on religion because it's where we come alive again. Giving up on religion looks like focus. Learning to focus less on all of our Christian activity and focus our attention on Jesus. A focus that frees us from a religious spirit and liberates us into a life of deep unity with God. And it looks like vision. Holding a vision of who we are in Christ. It's him who makes us who we are. A people marked by grace and mercy and goodness of a father who loves us more than we could ever calculate. Our identity comes from him alone. And from that place, it gives us a vision of who we are here and now and a vision of who we will be in the future. A people of resurrection, a people of wholeness, and a people of completeness with 